Well, this past April, there was an article that appeared in the Washington Post. Um, and I, I want to read extensively from this article to introduce my message this morning. I don't know who the writer was, but he wrote very nicely. So it says this. He emerged from the metro at the L'Enfant Plaza station in Washington, D.C., and placed himself against a wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, he was nondescript. A youngish man in blue jeans, a long-sleeved T-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he threw shrewdly, threw in a few dollars, his pocket change, his seed money, swiveled it to face pedestrian traffic and began to play his violin. It was 7.51 a.m. on Friday, January 12, 2007, the middle of morning rush hour. In the next 43 minutes, as the violinist performed six classical pieces, 1,097 people passed by. Almost all of them were on their way to work. And each passerby had a, a quick choice to make, one familiar to commuters in any urban area where the occasional street performer is part of the cityscape. Do you stop and listen? Do you hurry past with a blend of guilt and irritation, annoyed by the unbidden demand on your time and your wallet? Do you throw in a buck just to be polite? Does your decision change if he's really bad? What if he's really good? Do you have time for beauty? Shouldn't you? Well, on that Friday in January, those private questions would be answered in an unusually public way. No one knew it. But the fiddler standing against the bare wall outside the metro in an indoor arcade at the top of the escalators was one of the finest classical musicians in the world, playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made. His performance was arranged by the Washington Post as an experiment in context, perception and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste. Is a banal setting at an inconvenient time is that enough that would beauty transcend? At a one-time child prodigy at 39, Joshua Bell has arrived as an internationally acclaimed virtuoso. Three days before he appeared at the metro station, Bell had filled the house at Boston's stately Symphony Hall where merely pretty good seats cost $100. Two weeks later at the Music Center at Strathmore North Bethesda, he would play to a standing room only audience so respectful of his artistry that they stifled their coughs until the silence between movements. But on that Friday in January, Joshua Bell was just another mendicant competing for the attention of busy people on the way to work. He did not play popular tunes whose familiarity alone might have drawn the interest. That was not the test. These were masterpieces that have endured for centuries on their brilliance alone, soaring music befitting the grandeur of cathedrals and concert halls. Bell decided to begin with, and I can't, I don't know how to say this, Chaconi, Chacon from Johann Sebastian Bach's Parita No. 2 in D minor. Sounds sophisticated to me. Bell himself calls it not just one of the greatest pieces of music ever written, but one of the greatest achievements of any man in history. Bell says it's spiritually powerful piece, emotionally powerful, structurally perfect, plus it was written for a solo violin. Bell always performs in the same instrument, and he ruled out using another for this gig called the Gibson X Huberman. It was handcrafted in 1713. It's a pretty old violin. By Antonio Stradivari. You guys have heard of him, Stradivarius? The Italian master, during the Italian master's golden period, toward the end of his career, when he had access to the finest spruce, maple, and willow when his technique had been refined to perfection. Bell bought it a few years ago. He had to sell his own Stradivarius and borrow much of the rest. The price tag on the violin he paid, $3.5 million. He clearly meant it when he promised not to cheap out on his performance. He played with acrobatic enthusiasm. You can just picture it. There's, there's a video I saw on the Internet about this. Guys, you know, going back and forth. In fact, I, just, I went to the Rockford Symphony Orchestra recently. I don't know, recently, eight months ago or so. And there was a violinist there. And she was contorting all around like this. And I said, Yvonne, what, what's up with that? And she said, um, that's the way they do it. 
And as Joshua Bell was playing, he was, he was going all around like this, as the newspaper article writes, his body leaning into the music, arching on his tiptoes the high notes. The sound was nearly symphonic, carrying to all parts of the homely arcade as the pedestrian traffic filed past. The acoustics proved surprisingly kind. Though the arcade is of utilitarian design, a buffer between the metro escalator downstairs to the subway and the outdoors, it somehow caught the sound and bounced it back around and, and resonant. The violin is an instrument that is said to be much like the human voice and in this musician's masterly hands. It sobbed and laughed and sang. Ecstatic, sorrowful, importuning, adoring, flirtations, castigating, playful, romancing, merry, triumphal, sumptuous. It can only be written by a good reviewer, right? Said, so what do you think happened? Leonard Slatkin, music director of the National Symphony Orchestra, was asked the same question. What do you think would happen? He said, what do you think would occur, hypothetically, if one of the world's greatest violinists had performed incognito before a traveling rush hour audience of a hundred odd people? Let's assume, Slatkin said, that he's not recognized and just taken for granted as a street musician. Still, I don't think that if he's really good, he's going to go unnoticed. He'd get a larger audience in Europe. But okay, out of a thousand people, my guess is there might be 35 or 40 who would recognize the quality for what it is. Maybe 75 to 100 people would stop and spend some time listening. So uh, Slatkin was asked, would uh, a crowd gather? He said, oh yes. And how much would he make? About $150, that's what Slatkin said. Well, what happened? Well, absolutely nothing happened for the first three minutes. He was doing his gig on the, the violin. Nothing happened for three minutes. Sixty-three people had already passed by when finally there was a breakthrough of sorts. A middle-aged man altered his gait for a split second, turning his head to notice that there seemed to be some guy playing music. The man kept on walking, but it was something. After a half a minute, Bell got his first donation. A woman threw in a buck and scooted off. It was not until six minutes into the performance that someone actually stood against the wall and listened. Things never got much better. In three quarters of an hour that Joshua Bell played, seven people stopped what they were doing to hang around and take in the performance, at least for a minute. Twenty-seven gave money, most of them on the run, for a total of $32 and change. And one person gave a 20. So that leaves the 1,090 people who hurried by oblivious. Many... Only three feet away from this master musician, even turning to look. This is a far cry from the man who earns as much as $1,000 a minute in his performance at the orchestra hall. No, Mr. Slatkin, there was never a crowd, not even for a second. How would beauty mix with the mundane? Most people involved in the mundane and, and miss the beauty. So we hear of these things. There's something in us that says, this is very wrong. Isn't there something in you that says, is that something very wrong? I mean, a great grand master violinist shouldn't be relegated to playing in a subway station in the first place, right? His place is before kings. Proverbs 22, 29. You see a man skilled in his work, he'll stand before kings. He won't stand before obscure men. That's what he does. He stands before orchestra halls, packed paying much for their tickets. But something else is dreadfully wrong about us. well. We ought to recognize an obvious violin talent when we hear it. No matter how tone deaf we are, we should be able to recognize someone who is that good. A thousand people walked by Joshua Bell that day, oblivious to the talent that was before them. Only seven people stopped to listen for a minute or more. It's a great illustration, if you think about it, the way that Jesus came to earth, isn't it? Jesus himself, great in every respect. He's great in power. Think about the things Jesus could do. He could calm the storm. He could feed thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and fish. He was able to turn water into wine. Jesus was great in love. Nobody loved like Jesus loved. He loved his disciples completely until the end. He had a tremendous love for sinners and tax gatherers, being a friend of them because he had compassion upon those who needed a Savior. He cried over the rebellious and unrepentant Jerusalem. These people who had rejected all the prophets and were rejecting Him, Jesus had such a love for them that He wept and He cried, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you in, but you refused. It's a love towards someone who rejects you. 
Jesus had unbelievable healing power. You just think about all the people he healed. He healed lepers. He healed blind people. He restored withered hands. Lame people who'd never walked before were cured because of Jesus. People had fevers. They're cast away. People suffered of epilepsy and they were healed. They were cured so they wouldn't go into, into fits and seizures anymore. There was not a disease that Jesus could not cure. He had spiritual insight that was unsurpassed. Even as a boy, he came into the temple and confounded the wisdom of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. When he finished preaching, the response to the crowd was that of amazement. Nobody ever preached like this before. When confronted by religious experts who sought to trap him in his words, like the best, smartest guys in the land trying to trap you, Jesus standing on his feet, confounded them so much so that none of them ever dared to come and ask him a question again. Jesus was superior to the demonic world in every way. He cast out legions of angels with the word. He encountered this demoniac in the, the territory of Gadara. He said, what is your name? And the man said, legion, because we are many. Potentially thousands. And Jesus said, go. And thousands of demons cast out of this man. He transformed the man because of that. Mary Magdalene was indwelt by seven spirits and Jesus cast them out. She became one of his most faithful followers and supporters. Jesus overcame the strongest temptations that Satan could muster against him. Matthew chapter 4. Coming with huge temptations against him and Jesus was more powerful than Satan. Nobody could do what Jesus could do. He could walk on water. He could heal the woman who sought medical advice for 12 years from the best physicians and none of them could heal her. She wasted all her money on physicians and was still sick, had a hemorrhaging problem. And Jesus healed her. He could cause a fig tree to wither simply by speaking to it. Jesus predicted the future with great accuracy. Time after time after time, He told the disciples what's going to happen. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and handed over to the chief priests and the elders of the people. And they will sentence him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will spit upon him and they will mock him and they will scourge him and, and kill him and crucify him. And three days later he'll rise from the dead and everything, exactly what Jesus said, came exactly to pass. He predicted events of A.D. 70 with amazing detail also. His righteous zeal knew no bounds. Jesus could cast out all the money changers from the temple Himself. I mean, that's like Jesus coming in the door here, hating what we're doing, taking a whip, and sending us all out the door, all by Himself. He could move a mob. He wrestled in prayer like none other, spending entire nights in prayer. At one point, praying with such passion that His forehead sweat with blood. He had religious zeal. He cursed the hypocrisy of the externalistic Pharisees standing up to those who had much power and authority. It didn't matter who they were. Jesus had a zeal which overcame theirs. He had a faith which was greater than anyone had. His disciples tried to cast a demon out of a man's son and Jesus did, telling His disciples, it's because of your littleness of faith you can't cast this, disciple, this demon out. Well, upon the cross... He exhibited great faith and that while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he no, uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. When experiencing the tragedy of facing the wrath of God upon the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but thine be done. That's a belief. That's a faith that just says, God, I'm, I'm going to do what you have to do. Jesus was more powerful than death. He raised several people from the dead. Jairus' daughter... He raised from the dead. He raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. He himself conquered death. In fact, the reason why Jesus was so great is because he himself was God in the flesh. And so how was God in the flesh received? Well, he wasn't received. He was rejected, crucified as a criminal. In this way, Jesus is like Joshua Bell, the great violinist who was practically ignored in the public plaza. Great talent before undiscerning people for all intents and purposes, rejected. I mean, we would have Joshua Bell like accepted and, and uh, crowds of people around him and listening to him. And, and we would have the Messiah when he came to be received and rejoiced in. But as I've told you the last three weeks, God's ways are not our ways. 
The title of my message this morning is The Manner of the Messiah. We've been going through a topical sermon series this summer um, entitled Not Our Ways. For the past three weeks, we've been looking at various ways in which God has created and established a world which is different than the way that we would have created and established a world if we were God. We've seen how God created a world in which evil has played a crucial role in His plans. We have seen how God imputes sin and righteousness to others. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't impute sin to people. We wouldn't impute unrighteousness righteousness to people. Last week we saw how God helps people, but not angels. I'm not sure we would do that. And the fourth way in which Payson shares that God's ways are different than our ways. And by the way, these all come from a, a sermon preached by Edward Payson in the 1800s entitled God's Ways Above Man's. We've got copies of the sermon on the back table. I'm taking each of my topics from eight different points he makes in the heart of his sermon. And he's made those first three points and now we get to the fourth way in which Payson shares the, that God's ways are different than ours. Comes in the manner in which Messiah came. I just want to read from Payson's sermon as I've done each week. This is a, a rather lengthy quote, but you can listen to it and get the sense of the things we're going to try to exposit today. Payson writes, In devising a way of salvation and in providing a Savior, God's thoughts and ways are very different than ours and far, very far above them. We should have thought that if God intended to save sinners, He would bring them to repentance and save them at once or at least after suffering them to endure for a season the bitter consequences of their own folly and disobedience, we should never have thought of providing for them a Redeemer. Still less should we have thought of proposing that God's only Son, the Creator and Preserver of all things, should undertake this office. And least of all should we have expected that He would, for this purpose, think it necessary to become a man. If we had been informed that it was necessary and that it had been left for us to fix the time and manner of His appearing, we would have concluded that He ought to come soon after the fall, to be born of illustrious parents, to make His appearance on earth in all the splendor and pomp and glory imaginable, to overcome all opposition by a display of irresistible power, to ride through the world in triumph, conquering and to conquer. Such were the expectations of the Jews, and such most probably would have been ours. But... Never should we have thought of as being born of a virgin in abject circumstances, born in a stable, cradled in a manger, living for many years as a humble artificer, wandering, despised, and rejected of men without a place to lay his head, and finally arraigned, tried, condemned, and crucified as a vile malefactor that he might thus expiate our sins and by his death give life to the world. Had we been forewarned of these things, we should have considered them as too foolish too absurd, too incredible to obtain the smallest credit, and instead of thinking them cunningly devised, should have thought them very clumsily contrived fables unworthy of the least notice or regard. And thus, in fact, Payson continues, they have appeared and still do appear to the wise men of this world, for, says the apostle, the cross of Christ is foolishness to them that perish. When the self-righteous Jews and the vainglorious Gentiles were told of one who had been crucified as a malefactor was the Son of God, the Creator of the world, the only Savior of man, and that His blood cleanses from all sin, and without an interest in His merits they must perish forever, they could find no language sufficiently strong to express their contempt and indignation. And so, with the aid of a stake or of the rack or the cross, was called in to express what language could not in other words, they hated this message so badly that they martyred people. Yet this was the way which God thought proper to choose in, in all things which appear in the view of men so ridiculous, irrational, and absurd are in His view infinitely proper, wise, and amiable and display far more wisdom than all the works of creation, wonderful as they are. Surely then, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are His ways higher than ours. End of quote. You understand what Edward Payson is saying, right? The manner in which the Messiah came is much different than we would have expected the Messiah to have come. In fact, Edward Payson gave so many illustrations. We can't even begin to go through all of the different ways in which the manner of the Messiah is different than our ways. But we can look at a few of them. And that's what I want to do. From Galatians chapter 4, Verses 4 and 5. If you haven't opened your Bibles there, I invite you to open them. We're going to pick out just a few ways in which the manner of the Messiah was a bit different 
than the way which we have brought the, would have brought the Messiah into the world? We're going to pick out three ways. We could pick out more, but I thought this text was one just to illustrate, hopefully to impress upon your hearts, that God's ways are not our ways. They're different than our ways. And just even the way that He brings the Messiah. The manner of the Messiah. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. It's short. Let's read again. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Well, the first thing we see here is that He came in God's time. He came at God's time. It's the first thing we read here in verse 4. When the fullness of time came. It means it was no accident when Jesus came. It's no accident that Jesus didn't come before the flood destroyed the entire earth. It's no accident that Jesus didn't come during the days of King David or during the days of Malachi. It was no accident that Jesus came thousands of years after the fall of man. And when He came, the time was right. He came right on time, not a minute early, not a minute late. He arrived in the earthly scene when the fullness of time came. And and notice, it wasn't because there wasn't a need when Jesus came. Because there was a great need. And God knew full well the need. It wasn't because there wasn't a need. And it wasn't because God hadn't promised to send a Messiah, because He had promised to send a Messiah. The issue is all about timing. Immediately after Adam and Eve fell and brought the human race into sin and despair, God promised that a Messiah would come and deliver us from our mess. Adam and Eve sinned, and God held court. But Adam, Eve, and the serpent there, He discerned the facts. For all to see, he understood what was taking place. And then he said to Satan, he said, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. God was saying, Satan, you seduced Eve to eat of that fruit. And Adam joined in in that sin and disobeying my loving command to stay away from the tree. Listen, because you've done this, I'm going to curse you, Satan. I'm going to put you on the belly, on your belly the rest of your days. You're going to eat dirt. And you're going to have conflict between you and the seed of the woman. Her seed will arise. And when he arises, you're going to wound his foot and maybe make him limp for a few days. But he's going to wound your head an injury you're going to have, Satan, which you will never recover from. That was a curse. God pronounced within hours of the fall of Eve and Adam. And it was a blessing too. It was a promise that the seed would arise. It's the first promise of the Gospel. First promise of the Messiah come. And yet it was thousands of years until the Messiah came. In our days, in our ways, I think we would have brought Messiah much more quickly than that. I mean, which of you hearing your child cry doesn't immediately assess the situation? Now, there might be times you hear your child scream and you say, I know that child, I know that scream, not a problem, right? But there are other times when you hear that blood-curdling scream from your child, you say, I don't hear that one very often. There's something dreadfully wrong. And I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what conversations you're in. I don't care what activity you're involved in. You are going to get up and go and attend to your child to see what's causing that scream so much because you know the situation they're in. Well, after the fall, all of mankind was in distress and God knew full well of the predicament. In fact, God's the one that pronounced the curse upon them because of the consequences of their sin. God knew that they would bring forth children in pain He knew that dissension in marriage would exist. He cursed the ground so that our work would be wearisome and difficult. And He knew that we needed a Savior. Why didn't He come more quickly? Because it wasn't in the fullness of time yet. We would have thought that He'd come sooner. I think that Eve thought the Messiah would have come sooner in her lifetime. It says in chapter 4, verse 1 of Genesis, 
that um, Eve had relations with Noah's her husband, gave birth to a son. She named him Cain from the Hebrew word kana, which means to get or acquire or obtain. It says, I have gotten, I have kanad this woman with the help of the Lord. And many commentators have entertained the idea that Eve believed that Cain was the one whom the Lord had given to fulfill His promise to defeat Satan once for all. I've gotten my seed. I've gotten the one from the Lord. Now this one's going to rise up and strike down Satan. God's ways are not Eve's ways. Eve would never live to see the Messiah in the flesh. For that matter... Prophets, many, many prophets would never live to see the Messiah in the flesh. These prophets, they looked, they anticipated, they wanted Messiah to come. In fact, they wrote better than they knew. They wrote their writings. And after they wrote their writings, Peter says, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know the person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. These prophets longed for the time the Messiah would come and they, they made searches and inquiries and exhausted their intellectual capabilities trying to figure out when exactly this fullness of time would be. They couldn't quite figure it out. They couldn't figure it out because quite simply, God's ways are not our ways. Though God's ways were clear, Daniel chapter 9 prophesies even exactly when Messiah would come. Daniel 9 speaks about how there would be this decree of issuing a, a, a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And from that time on, there would be 483 years until Messiah came. And for those of you who studied this, you know that in 445 B.C., Artaxerxes made a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And 430 years later, as the Jewish calendar goes, Messiah entered Jerusalem. And looking back, we can say, oh yeah, that makes sense. But before that, it would have been difficult to figure it out. That's how prophecy is. It's difficult in the midst of it. Afterwards, you look back, you say, oh, that's how it works. That how, that's how it will be at the end of time someday. Christ comes back. You know, we don't know when or how, but we look back at the end of time and say, ah, it makes all sense now. That's how prophecy works. The time was right when Jesus came. The time was perfect. Messiah came just as prophesied. You know, and we can come up with all types of reasons of why God delayed the coming of the Messiah. What had to take place until the fullness of time took place? And, and here are some conjectures, which I think are, are true in some sense. I think the fullness of time couldn't come until uh, we fully understood sacrifices. I mean, you think about Jesus is going to come as a sacrifice. If Jesus would have come as a sacrifice, say, in the days of Noah, would we have understood the full import of what it meant that Jesus was sacrificed? I don't think so. I think that, that God set up and established the law and set up all these rules for sacrifice so that we'd see that if you sin, you need a sacrifice. So the writer of Hebrews could say, one might almost say according to the law that all things are cleansed with blood. So we can see these sacrifices, see that, oh, in order to have sins cleansed, we need to have a sacrifice. Ah, when Messiah came, I understand sacrifice. So I think that God had to wait for the time to come till we understood sacrifice think that um, perhaps even the role of high priest, we would never understood role of high priest unless Israel had been set up with a high priest year after year, once a year, coming into the Holy of Holies to bring a, a sacrifice for himself and also then for the people, pleading before God in the most sacred and holy place. And I don't think we would understand Jesus' high priest before the whole temple tabernacle system was set up after year 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 of the high priest entering in. I think God was teaching us of things to appreciate the Messiah. I think also just the fact of keeping the law. I think he established the law and showed after years and years and years and years, Israel never obeyed it. Like in our family, we've been reading through Exodus. We just finished Deuteronomy. We just finished Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy 32 is a song that Moses has to teach Israel. And basically in the song it says, you're going to disobey and you're going to be cursed. But that's what God had to teach. We've given you these laws. Now follow the laws. You follow laws. Deuteronomy 28, you'll be blessed. You don't follow them, you'll be cursed. And what has Israel done time after time after time after time? They've fallen away. They've fallen away. They haven't kept it. They haven't kept it. They haven't kept it. And I think for years God was saying, okay, did you get my point yet? I don't think so. Go back and do it again. Did you get my point yet? No, you didn't get it. And I think finally when the fullness of time came is when we were prepared to catch the point. I think God delayed Messiah until uh, we'd understand what it means he's a king. 
you know, if, if Messiah would have come before King David, I think we'd have missed the fact of the fact that Jesus is our, our true king and missed the whole understanding of what it means to be a king of the nation, the king of God's people. So I think he came after David for that purpose, to teach him about a, a king. I think also he showed us in the years of all the kings of Israel going down. You know, there were 19 kings in Israel and all of them were bad. All of them were bad. And even the kings of Judah, only some of them were good. I think he was teaching us that as many kings as you have, don't place your hope in kings. But there's a true king you can place your hope in. I think there are more ways we can, we can end at that. But for some reason, God delayed his time. Messiah came maybe not according to our ways, but he came perfect in the ways of God. He came in God's time. Second point here, the Messiah lived in God's way. Messiah lived in God's way. That comes from the second half of verse 4 here. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Born of a woman, born under the law. When God decreed that Messiah would come, He'd come as a fellow human being. It's God's way. Born of a woman, born under law. He'd be born of a woman like all of us have entered into this world. He'd be born to live under the law as every Israelite was compelled to live. Jesus didn't come as an angel. He came as a man. And that was the point of a message last week, right? He came as a man to help men. He didn't come as an angel to help angels. We touched on it last week. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. In Hebrews 2, verse 17, it says much the same thing, that he had to be made flesh like his brethren in order to save them and help them. To save people... God's way is for Messiah to come, to be a person as well. Born like we're born. Breathing the same air we breathe. Eating the same food that we eat. Living under the same restrictions that we have physically, morally. Experiencing the same temptations that we experience. We can, we can handle that, the incarnation. But one thing that's special about the incarnation is the manner in which the incarnation took place. Jesus came as an obscure man. He wasn't the son of wealthy parents. He wasn't the son of influential parents. To be sure, they were godly. The Scriptures say that Joseph was a righteous man. And you simply need to read Mary's prayers and you can detect the godliness in her. The parents of Jesus were godly, but they weren't influential. We would have expected different. We would have expected the Messiah to come. They would have had John the Baptist's parents. You know who John the Baptist's parents were, right? He was the high priest. The one man in all the land who was allowed to enter into the, the holy place once for the sins of the people, once a year. John the Baptist was born of privilege, the son of a high priest. We'd expect that's how Messiah would come. But that's not how Messiah came. It wasn't God's plan. God planned that Messiah would be born insignificant parents in an insignificant little village called Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That's what it means. Born of a woman, born under the law, obscure place just like us. But there is something here, even in this text, that shows that Jesus, the Messiah, was more than a mere man. He was divine. God sent forth His Son to come into the flesh. As theologians try to grapple with this, it is one person with two natures, divine nature, human nature, one person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, so God is God in the flesh, the Bible teaches. About a, a year ago, the movie Superman came out. And um, the story, of course, is fictitious. It's pretend. But Jesus Christ is the true Superman. It's a perfect picture of who Jesus is. I mean, think about other superheroes like Batman, Spider-Man. Batman and Spider-Man are just like us. Batman, what's his name? Bruce Wayne, wealthy millionaire. Spider-Man, you girls over here know it. Peter Parker, news reporter for the Bugle. Normal people. But each of them rise to a level. Batman rises because of his wit, I guess, because of his charm. You know, fighting these big evil men like Joker and Riddler. Put him behind bars and make Gotham City a safer place. Spider-Man, though, was um, stung by a spider and gained spidey powers. 
Right? I don't even know who are Spider-Man's. I don't even know who they are. I know Joker and Riddler. That's more my era. But anyway, Spider-Man is against. Who are they? Who are they? Scarecrow. I'm like, I'm like clueless of this. But I just know that Spider-Man was bitten by a spider, had spider-manic powers, right? He could act like a spider, he'd climb on ceilings and spin webs and climb through the city and stuff like that. But, but that's not Jesus either. Jesus wasn't born merely a man, but there are some theologies who say this. Jesus was born merely a man, and then when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him, you know, bitten by the spider, and then he became this powerful man. Until the Holy Spirit left him shortly before the crucifixion. But that's not who. Jesus is. Jesus was Superman. By nature, fundamentally different from us. Superman came from planet Krypton. He's descended to help us. When Superman mixes with society, he looks like a mild-mannered reporter. But he's different in his nature. Right? He's faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's Superman, right? That's Jesus. Totally different than us coming in and yet living among us. But even Superman fails because Superman is totally different. But when Jesus came, it was like Superman come into the flesh. That's who Jesus is. And that's why I think this, this text, you're talking about the Son coming, born of a woman, born under law. So He entered into humanity, though Himself He was deity. You know, the Jews didn't think this about their Messiah. They thought Messiah would be one of them in every way. They thought Messiah would be like Batman, who would rise above the rest. right? Be the political leader to lead them into her glory, Israel's glory. They knew Messiah would be son of David. They knew that Messiah would come from the line of Judah. But what they didn't realize that was Messiah would be greater than David at the same time. Remember when Jesus stumped the Pharisees and Sadducees? How does David's son, why is David's son called Lord by David? In other words, why does David call his son, who is his inferior, his Lord? The only way you can explain that is through the God-man, Jesus Christ, come together. And that's the point of Galatians 4. God sent forth His Son, human like us, yes indeed, but there's something extra-worldly about Him. The Creator, Sustainer of the world, dwelling among us, Emmanuel, God with us, and as being the pure and holy and righteous One, He was able to do what we couldn't do, where Superman can stand there and take the bullets of Lex Luthor, whoever's going after Superman. You bam, 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 and he just I just remember those old black and white things. He stand there like this and ping, ping, ping. That's Superman, and that was Jesus. Sin, temptation come upon him. Ping, 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 just off of him. He lived a holy life. Years before he was born, he's called the Holy One. At his conception, he's called the Holy Offspring. So his life, no one could lay accusation against him. There was one time when he was debating with the Jews. He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? Show me one sin that I did. And they were all quiet. In that sense, Jesus is Superman. He's not Batman or Spider-Man, mere humans who've risen above the rest of us. No. He's God's Son, the nature different than ours. But He was like us, with a nature like ours, born of a woman and under the law. Now, the Trinity is not our ways either. That's just another thing we could preach on in this series. The parallels of Superman continue, though. When Superman wasn't wearing his tights and cape, he was a mild-mannered reporter with glasses, right? And, and some, somehow they portray him in the movies or cartoons as kind of a, a, a fumbling, frail kind of guy. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll step and fall and, you know, his glasses will get broke maybe. And That's the, the manner of the Messiah, though. Mild manner. Though he was sovereign creator of the universe, he lived in a humble life as a Jewish carpenter turned rabbi in later years. The Messiah didn't come with great fanfare either. Not born of rich and famous parents. Born of smelly barn. His appearance wasn't such that was attracted to him. And we, we aren't attracted to Clark Kent. Lois Lane may be, kind of, sort of, but she isn't, you know. That's how it is with Messiah. There is, I'm not sure, right? It says, Isaiah 53, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look on, upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. 
right? Would we have a Messiah? We'd create the, the handsome Hulk who's going to be, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, going to lead California and lead the United States, you know, this big, great, you know, sovereign power, majestic, charismatic leader. But that's not how God decreed it. God decreed that Clark Kent would come among us. These are God's ways. They're not our ways. Oh, there were times when people got a glimpse of the glory of Christ. But they were fleeting enough that people rarely caught on. In fact, you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus went up to the mountain and He started shining bright forth like a light. The glory of Himself wasn't kept in by His clothes and He was you know, shown forth for who He is. And, and there was Elijah and there was Moses and there was God. This is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. And there was Peter upon the mountain and, and, and Peter and John and James were there and looking at, at Jesus the Messiah and they fell asleep. And then when they're walking down the mountain, remember what Jesus said? He says, don't tell anybody about this until I rise from the dead. You see me as Superman. Yes, you know the secret, but don't tell anybody because I'm Clark Kent. It's the man of the Messiah. If someone's come as Savior, we'd expect him to come with great pomp and circumstance. I mean, think about the presidential candidates right now. I mean, you just look out there, whether it's Obama or Clinton or... Um, the others, I can't even name them. <laughs> Those are the two that stand out in my mind. Not for good reasons, maybe for bad reasons. But they stand out in my mind. And I think about, um, who is this? McCain is there and Giuliani and whoever. They're there. And how do they come? They stage the rallies. Lots of reporters, right? They enter the stage amidst many cheers, giving politically charged speeches. Everyone claps and cheers. Woohoo! This is the one that's going to lead us to the promised land. This is the one, right? Trying to get supporters in debate, trying to make others look silly. Which of these presidential candidates ever holds back anything that would make themselves look greater? They don't do that. Every advantage they can use, they take it up. Every defect in someone else, they take them down. They want to be the best. They want to show no kinks in my armor, anybody. But Jesus did it differently. You think about it. If that happens for presidential hopefuls, think about Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. We might expect fanfare to be taken up a notch. It's not the United States we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus saves people in China and He saves people in Nepal and He saves people in India and He saves people in Russia and He saves people in Turkmenistan and He saves people in Spain and He saves people in France and, and Europe and England and South America and Brazil and well, nobody in Antarctica, I guess, because they don't live there. They're not from Antarctica. but All the continents of the world God's the Savior of the world. And you think about somebody coming in to be like that. Shouldn't there be worldwide fanfare and worldwide acclamation? Worldwide announcements? Angelic proclamations throughout the whole world? And yet, who was the angelic pronouncement made to? Just a little angelic pronouncement, which was enough to fear the shepherds. But just a little announcement to them. And then they went and they found out Jesus exactly. There He is, that smelly barn in that manger. There he is, yep, yep. And we don't know how many shepherds there were. We get the sense that there were like five or ten, maybe twenty. And that's who the angelic announcement came to. We didn't expect it to come to the whole world. But that's how Jesus was to come. He was to live in humility and obscurity. That's the manner of the Messiah. Veiling his true identity, living in God's way, not our way. Well, finally, this morning... Not only did He come at God's time, not only did Messiah live in God's way, but He also died for God's purpose. And perhaps in this way, the manner of the Messiah differs greater than ours would have been to any degree. Died for God's purpose. That's a purpose right there in, in verse 5. So that, right? that's a purpose word so that He might redeem those who are under the law. The purpose of the Messiah's coming was to redeem people. The Jews were anticipating this. They were anticipating a Redeemer. They were anticipating a political Messiah to save them from Rome. But God sent forth a different kind of Redeemer. He sent forth a spiritual Messiah to save His people from their sins. Indeed, that's what Jesus means. Jesus means Savior. 
when you read the scope of the Scripture, you know that this redemption that Jesus accomplished was through a sacrificial death upon the cross. God's plan was for Jesus to die in humility. That was God's plan. To die a humble death upon a cross. The Jews never anticipated this. That's why it's called the stumbling block for them. Because they were anticipating something else. The Gentiles never anticipated this. That's why the cross called foolishness to them. Follow a dead man? That's crazy to me. Who would believe that this same cross that is considered a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, would be to those who believe the power of God? Who would believe that this cross becomes our boast? Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who would believe that this same cross that is foolishness and a stumbling block would be our greatest hope? See, the cross is far different than what we would have thought to be the best way. And even especially the way that Jesus came upon the cross. Our Messiah was entirely sinless and yet crucified as an evildoer. It's clear over and over throughout Scripture that Jesus was sinless and yet Jesus was, John 15, verse 25, hated without a cause. There's one reason to have a cause to be hated. It's another reason to have no cause and yet still be hated. That's how the Messiah was crucified. At the trial of Jesus... It was only because the Sanhedrin sought hard to obtain false testimony against him that he was handed over to Pilate. They tried. In fact, even the Gospel accounts said many people were rising up to give false witness. I'll give witness against him. And the Sadducees and Pharisees knew that it was false witness. And he'd give this testimony and then they found it contradicted and it just didn't quite write until there was someone who finally said that he claimed to be the Son of Man. Oh, is that it? Oh, he blasphemed. Oh, put him off to Pilate. He deserves to die. Just time after time, they had to search and search and search and search and search for any kink in his armor. It was only the crowds that finally convinced Pilate to hand Jesus over to him to be crucified. He repeatedly told them on several occasions, I find no guilt in him. Let me release him. He's innocent. He's innocent. And that's for all times. Pontius Pilate was declaring the innocency of Jesus Christ. (laughs) And even when accused falsely and reviled, He committed no sin. And when suffering unjustly upon the cross, he had the amazing ability to pray, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. That's the manner of the crucifixion of the Messiah. Uh, I read recently of of uh, of a convict that um, murdered somebody for murdering somebody. And uh, he made this whole whole, uh, last thing he was going to say was going to be a joke. And people are all up in storm about just how ridiculous that is. This guy's going to, his life, he's facing his death and he's going to tell a joke. You know, just like mocking death. And in that some sense, that's what happened with Jesus. It was a joke that he died. He shouldn't have died at all because he was a righteous man. You know, we think that a righteous life would bring about great blessings upon Jesus. And that was the thrust of the Scriptures, right? God gives a law. He made it clear. Deuteronomy 28. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. Throughout the Proverbs, you see the same thing. A righteous life leads to blessing. A wicked life leads to cursing. And so we would have expected the righteous life from a perfect Messiah would have been great, great blessing. Instead, it was crucified. Well, let's think back upon the Joshua Bell illustration. This is what happened to the Messiah. This is what happened to his death. This is how awful it was. You can imagine Joshua Bell, the violinist, playing in that public plaza before a thousand people. And it was one thing for all these people to ignore him. But now imagine he's playing his violin. He encountered a group of thugs who came up to him, beat him up, punched him in the face, and broke his $3.5 million violin. We'd be outraged. He didn't do these people harm. In fact, he was helping them. He was soothing their soul with this majestic type of music. And yet these thugs took advantage of this poor man. But that's the manner of death that took place with Messiah. When Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, had all the credentials He came to help, they killed Him. I mean, think about Jesus. He was kind. He was loving. He was helpful. He healed the sick. He helped the poor. He spoke the truth. He spoke the truth in love. He held the keys to true reform. Yet people didn't recognize the Lord of glory. And rather than merely ignoring Him, like people did with Joshua Bell in Washington, D.C., a bunch of thugs rose up and killed the Messiah. Is that how we would have our Messiah come? 
We would never have thought up a plan like this. But it's God's plan. He sent His Son into the world to die upon a cross to redeem us from sins. And the truth of the Gospel is this. We simply need to believe and trust in that and we're forgiven. Our sins are wiped away in that Messiah. That's how verse 5 ends. That He might redeem those who are under the law that we may receive the adoption as sons. Now, faith isn't mentioned here explicitly, but it is mentioned in all of Galatians. That is, we are justified by faith alone, not by works of the law. I mean, that's, that's a clear message here of Galatians. But here it says that we might receive adoption as sons. As we believe and trust in Jesus Christ, we become sons of God, adopted into His family. I mean, the implications of that are staggering. Being one of God's children. Being able to call the Heavenly Father Daddy. That's what verse 6 talks about. God sent forth His Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Calling the omnipotent, sovereign, holy, majestic God our Daddy. That's the truth here. Inheriting everything a child inherits. Verse 7. If you're a son... You're an heir through God. We inherit everything that Jesus Christ inherits by faith in Him. But in believing in this Messiah, the manner of this Messiah is a bit different than other Messiahs, and we need to believe in this type of Messiah. The one who came in God's time, the one who lived in God's way, and the one who died for God's purpose. That's the Messiah that we need to believe in. And I exhort you today to believe Him and trust Him. That's the only path to life. Believe upon Him whose ways are not our ways. So let's pray together. Lord, I would pray that each and every one of us here in this room might, might treat Jesus as the one He deserves. Though He came in, um, in humility, though He came in poverty, though He came in obscurity, pray that we would embrace Him, Lord, for the the God-man that He is. I pray we'd believe in Him. I pray that each and every one of us would, would place our faith in Christ to realize that He's our only hope. Oh, our way of Messiah might be totally different, and yet this is the manner of the Messiah that You've given us. I pray that we would trust, not in our own ways, but we would trust in Your ways. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.